This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, one of your hosts. We're here today with Jean Holly, Professor of Sociology at the College of Staten Island and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And today we'll be talking about her new book, Horse Crazy, Girls and the Lives of Horses, out in 2019 from the University of Georgia Press. Hello, Jean, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm so excited to be here with you. Oh, wonderful. I am too. How are you doing? How's your day? How's New York? Things are good. It's been really exciting to be in New York these days with Black Lives Matter happening all over the city, protests, you know, across the street from my apartment and everywhere. So it's really neat. It's a great place to be right now. That is wonderful. Yeah, you are in a good position to watch history unfold, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so tell me, is it exciting? Is the spirit good? How are things feeling? Well, it, it to me, it is exciting. I mean, of course, you know, the the brutality of the murders and mm-hmm. the growing awareness of how common those murders of um, African-Americans in the United States are by police and security people is pretty stunning. But many of us have been involved with that Mm -hmm. movement for a while. And so as stunning and horrifying as it is, it's like, finally, people are really paying attention. And so to me, I guess I feel more hopeful than anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's hard for me to think about some of the people who've been murdered without, you know, just mm-hmm. feeling a profound sadness all over again. But, um, but you know, I really think that this time things are changing. I feel this as well, you know, and there is, it's, um, this isn't news, right? George Floyd is the first, is the last in a long line or not even the most recent, sadly. Um, and I feel like finally someone's listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so That's let's right. hope. All right. Um, Okay, so let's uh, let's get to your work here. So I'm an expat myself. I'm a Midwesterner and I live in Amsterdam. And I find myself thinking about the disjunctures between the world of my childhood, the 70s and the 80s, Michigan, the woods, and the world I inhabit now, which is, you know, I live in the heart of an internationally famous city. And as I was reading the introduction, uh, your, your prologue, I was thinking New York is so far away from Wyoming, from the Rockies of your youth in every sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So the differences there in your situation seem even more profound. So do you do you think about the Rockies often? How does how does your childhood interact with your life in New York now? Well, you know, even your question makes my eyes feel a little, I, you know, tear up a tiny bit. That's how much I miss the Rockies. I miss those mountains every single day. It's like a part of me isn't here with me um, in New York. And I love New York City. I've loved it, 
you know, from the minute I got off the bus, I've just loved it. Um, but yeah, I really, really miss the mountains. And it's, it was, you know, I mean, obviously nature is everywhere. The things that you, were in nature too. So New York City is as well, but it's a different kind. And um, the ability to be somewhere that is profoundly quiet and, you know, largely without human presence, at least for periods of time outside of oneself, is pretty remarkable. So I spent a lot of time alone with my horse and out riding, you know, and I do miss that. Yeah, I, I can, I am, I can imagine. And I ask specifically now because horse crazy begins with really a meditation about your life with horses, but also your life as a child in Wyoming. And when you can, uh, yeah, yeah, I could, I could taste the dust, mm. right? The mountains and the remoteness mm-hmm. of, um, of where you were. It's so present in the beginning. So I always ask my guests how they came to their current work, and that usually ends up being almost an academic biography. But I suspect, and in this case, your academic journey intertwines with one much more personal. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've, I've tended to study. Um, well, I look at you know the ways power happens in and in oppressive manifestations, things like violence and you know the violence of racism and sexual assault. Um, but this book, so after writing several books that were sort of focused on more painful topics, I, I came to thinking about my childhood again and remembering that there was more to it. I mean, I, one of the things I've written about is the violence in my own family. And also one of the ways part of my family made a living was through the meat industry. So the violence of that industry. And I mm-hmm. wrote a story that paralleled the two. It's called The Parallel Lives of Women and Cows, Meat Markets. So that's the kind of thing, you know, I was exploring violence and the ways in which um, it manifests sort of the people who, who who take part in violence don't just do it in one way often. There's a whole kind of way of living that it's Im- embedded with an understanding of themselves in the world that's oppressive. And that was certainly my white Western family. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't know, it just somehow it kept creeping up on me that there was more to my childhood than that, you know, <laughs> that and I and, and the more I thought about my relationship with my horse, the more I remembered that, that he was also my family. And my time with him was profound. I mean, he really carried me through a very hard childhood. And, and so I just, I guess, in a way more than anything, I wanted to honor that. But also, I wanted to tell a hopeful story because I think even people who are in really difficult circumstances manage to find ways to survive, right? And mm-hmm. and so that's what horses were for me. They were they brought me life and they brought me joy and they brought me a kind of peace and safety that I wanted to to write about. Oh yeah, I can. Uh, I, I, that really speaks. I'm closing my eyes and I'm thinking about Sunny, my Palomino. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, so, so, um, I mean, let's, I would like to take a moment to speak about your methodology because there's also a bit, I'm not more than there's more than a bit of autoethnography here. Um, would you like to comment on that? Yeah. So I've used autoethnography in several of my books, certainly in the parallel lives of women and cows, and also a tiny bit in my first book, which is about ways of thinking about touching children in the United States. Um, and then I've done, you know, journal essays and, and creative nonfiction essays and so on. So it's definitely been a theme throughout my work. And this book I I used, you know, it was, it was 
pretty significant chunks of it were what people sometimes call autoethnography. Outside in the writing world, it's often called experimental writing or creative nonfiction. So it's kind of funny how different worlds frame it slightly differently. But in sociology, there's been a turn towards thinking about, um, well, you know, with feminism and other social movements, placing oneself in the middle of the social world and understanding oneself is inextricably connected to that which one studies. And so I think this is another piece of that to examine my own experiences added, you know, I mean, very simply more material and more, more, more data, more evidence of this thing I was exploring. And um, so, yeah, I used that as a piece of the, of the methodology, but I also Mm -hmm. did um, 25 in-depth interviews with women who identified as having been horse crazy girls. (laughs) I used um, historical material. I, I, I explored, you know, science around horses' lives and what horses' history had been in this in this country. Um, so it was a kind of a you know I used a mix, which my mm-hmm. m- one of my mentors, Bob Alford, Robert Alford, really pushed that that using as if possible three sort of entry points into a project was a good idea, um, and you know methodological mm-hmm. entry points. And so I tried to do that, but ironically, right there's. <laughs> Al- Alfred, who I was very close with, he died some years ago. Um, he didn't like the autoethnog- autoethnographic mm-hmm. writing. A lot of sociologists don't. A lot of social scientists don't. And actually, yeah. for good reason. I mean, it is, you know, hard. I think the I think the issue that people have probably more than any other issue is the question of objectivity. If I'm telling about mm-hmm. myself, how can I be objective? Um, and I think it's a good issue. I think that's that's a, a important critique. Um, I also think, though, and objectivity is always an issue. So I don't think it's a critique that should sit just with autoethnography. I think it's a question we should have about all of our research. And I think people are more aware of that, right? We don't we don't tend to see things in a positivist um, frame anymore or a frame, in other words, of being the scientist who studies mm-hmm. the world separate from the world and comes to know a kind of truth about that world. We see how um, embedded in life in the life around us, we are so that our very questions, yeah. you know, come from a, our own experiences to some extent. But um, yeah, so I think that I, I guess I, mm-hmm. I really appreciate the critique of that methodology. But I choose, I think, ultimately, mm-hmm. it adds more than more than it loses. So yeah. I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, because the idea that we're like, we're, you know, we come at our work in this, it's, uh, we do our research in this, these little labs or like what have you, you know, and there's, we're not involved in the process in any way yeah. is nonsense. It was never like that. Yeah. Um, so as long as I've, I feel like there's something uh, just much more honest about autoethnography. And I, I, I also, I understand the take, you know, we of making sure that the critique that we don't just do me search, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's that you, you are part of this work You're, and, and situating yourself as the researcher and, and, and noticing and honoring your position is, I think, a reasonable way to go. Um, okay, you. so my first question, quite simple. What's your argument? Well, I make a few arguments throughout the book, but the primary mm-hmm. argument is that I think girls who are horse crazy use their horse craziness to um, build lives for themselves that uh, challenge what's normal. So I think in a couple mm-hmm. of ways. I think in one way, they find a kind of empowerment. They become bigger, they become stronger, they become, you know, more in their relationships with horses. And I think they also um, challenge normativity. 
that, you know, so for example, if, you know, and having raised, having a daughter myself, I see how much this is still very present gender norms, um, which are always very raced as well, right? That they're typically white girls that are the model and so on, Mm -hmm. but that gender norms still uphold an idea of a princess and a princess fantasy and gender norms still, you know, people still think that girl babies are sweeter and prettier and lighter and less strong than boy babies, even though, you know, that's obviously we know now um, that's all Mm -hmm. bunk. That's not true. So those norms are alive and well. And I think that horse crazy girls, and it seems to me, you know, for a long time, not just my generation or the generation that's come since me, but even I interviewed several women who were older in their 60s, 70s, even one woman who was in her 90s and being with horses challenged a lot of the gender norms that were present in their moments. And so I think that's a big piece of what the relationship is. Um, and I, I argue that, it, yeah, horse crazy girls offer a real challenge to normative girlhood. But even, I mean, a piece of my argument is they also offer a real challenge to sort of normative ideas of what matters in the world. So those, I guess it's kind mm-hmm. of threefold, the, the most central argument. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, the, the, in terms of that, the challenge that they offer to ideas of what matters, horse-crazy girls really center the relationship. Now, I didn't study, mm-hmm. you know, girls who were um, athletes as much as I studied girls who were pleasure riders. So I think there, mm-hmm. you know, could be differences across the spectrum. But from what I've read and from what people have told me, I think there is some continu- continuity that one of the central aspects of the horseback riding is the relationship that the girl has with the horse. Mm-hmm. So relationships matter. And in a society where, on the one hand, for example, liberal feminism has pushed for women to enter the male work world and leave behind the world of the family, right? And there's all kinds of problems with that in terms of race and class and so on. Care, you know, wasn't central in that in that part of the feminist movement. So to, to bring care back in and make it a central uh, piece of one's life and one's commitments is a profound thing to do, but not in the way conservatives want, right? These girls Mm -hmm. are not bringing care back in and being traditional girls. They're out in the world. They're strong. They're tough. Mm -hmm. They're getting stiffed on. They're facing injury. They're handling manure. Um, It's a whole nother kind of, you know, idea of femininity. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Life with a horse is, it's, you gotta be tough. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So this, I mean, it reads, this book reads as, um, uh, you know, there's, it's a, uh, you tell a story as well as anything else, right? So it's part memoir, it's storytelling, it's this kind of delightful exploration of something, but, but it's also uh, a very theoretical and hard hitting uh, exploration of effective relationships, the effective relationships between humans and animals, gender performance, biopower, consumerism, race, um, and how we interact with social norms. It is a theoretical hard hitter. Uh, you rely, um, we start with Foucault, obviously, and then kind of move on. Do you want to talk a bit about the theoretical framework with which you engage? Yeah, I mean, ju- I use mostly Foucault and and socialist feminist thought. So I'm interested mm-hmm. in the ways in which, you know, cultures reproduce the power of those who are powerful, right, is a piece of what I'm examining. And I think that that happens through things like gender and race, right? Racism itself is a phenomena that ends up reproducing the power of white people. Um, And it's, although racism is a way of thinking, it lives in a structure, you know, that means 
people of color have less access to resources, less access to healthcare, et cetera. So I'm interested in that sort of framework of thinking about the ways in which culture and the ways we think come out of structural systems that oppress. Mm -hmm. And so that's, so both I use some of Foucault and some of socialist feminism to talk about that, those questions of power and how power happens in our lives. And Foucault is interesting because um, he, you know, for those who are interested in Foucault, he has these two sort of I mean, many brilliant ideas, but two of them are one is about normalization or how we come to be the things our society sort of pushes us and wants us to be. And so girls become girls and boys become boys and white people become white people, right? People, white people have a sense of entitlement and a sense that they're normal and everybody else is not normal and so on. Those phenomena that we're increasingly recognizing today mm-hmm are Mm -hmm. what Foucault would call normalization. People become this thing that's considered normal, not that it's normal by any means. It's an artifact of culture. But the, so that's, I think, a really useful idea to think about. The other thing Foucault does is explore how our bodies in, in mass are used in the service of power. So Mm -hmm. um, horses, you know, reproduce as animal bodies, all kinds of systems of power, including what's interesting with horses is that like pets on the one hand horses are pets for a while and they're 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 creatures with which a human girl has a very intense and important relationship if that's you know if they're with a girl um and then on the other hand when horses become lame or they're no longer useful or the girl grows up and the family can't afford the horse anymore they often still become an animal much like a farm animal, right? And so in the U.S. in particular, but in lots of places, there's this split between pets, which are non-human animals, and farm animals, which are you know non-human animals. You'd think we'd treat them the same. In the U.S., you can treat a farm animal in ways that are you know would be considered profoundly brutal if we were to do those things to our pets. Horses end up crossing that line. They're pets, and then many of them end up dying in slaughterhouses. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's I, that's a piece of what I'm exploring is. Foucault's idea uh, about how, you know, bodies as populations, humans and horses and cattle um, become, you know, live really in the service of a reproduction of broader systems of power and, in, you know, in, in the broadest a capitalist mm-hmm. economy like ours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is probably best explored further by just going through and talking about what you do in the book. So uh, from this introduction, you move on chapter two, U.S. horse history from colonization to recreation, working for men, playing with girls. And uh, it does just what it what just just what promised what it's promised. It tells us about the long relationship between Americans and horses. That's right. Yeah. And I hope I mean, let me just put in a plug that the theory is hard hitting in the first chapter. But after that, Mm -hmm. I really work hard to make the language (laughs) accessible to people who aren't theorists, because I'm really aiming to be read by people who are not necessarily interested in theory at all. And I think I mean, I've been told that I have some success with that. But I guess my readers, you know, of your listeners of your show can let me know if I'm wrong. (laughs) This this chapter is in a nutshell, just, you know, a very, um, succinct history of this animal that we call horses. And I'm interested in how horses, you know, came to be horses. They were actually originally coming from a tiny animal that was kind of shaped like and looked like a fox. And oddly enough, we think that it was in Wyoming that those those first came about, those little fox-like things. They evolved, they spread all over the, the globe. Um, 
And then they died out in the Americas, which is kind of fascinating. So Mm -hmm. for about 10,000 years, most people believe, some people think, no, there were still horses, but the majority of people think, Mm -hmm. no, horses died out in the Americas. They were everywhere else and how they came back. And so here in the service of whiteness and of power, they came back with colonizers. So horses came to the American continent with colonizers. They were brought over by originally the Spanish and then they bred and they got away and, you know, other peoples and other groups captured them and, and, and managed to get them and they spread everywhere. But it's a pretty recent history on these continents. Um, and I'm also interested, so that's sort of like what happened with horses in a, in, in a very quick nutshell, but I'm also interested in the ways that horses were gendered male for a long time in Western cultures. Um, they were associated with labor, productive labor that men did. So mm-hmm. with what happened was, you know, from cowboys to, to carriage horses, to riding and hunting, to all the ways in which horses have been used by humans in the Western world. With industrialization, when factories began to do more of our labor and less of the labor to produce food was happening on farms, Mm -hmm. with that shift in the 1800s in the United States, earlier and other places, with that shift, horses were less and less useful in the sense Mm -hmm. of productive labor. And that's the shift then by the 1920s, 1930s in the U.S., horses were being increasingly used for leisure and women stepped in then. Mm -hmm. But, you know, largely more middle class and elite white women had had access to that privilege. Now, this is a sweep, right? Other groups that were, mm-hmm. you know, African-American cowboys, Native Americans, horses were really important in many communities. So I'm making a sweep and talking about mostly the mainstream, but even to some extent from what there isn't, you know, from the literature I can find um, within, you know, Black communities and within Native American communities, horses were often understood as more male animals, but not always. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly in white United States, you know, such as it was in the 1800s and early 1900s, horses were um, associated with men until this shift happened. Right. I mean, they're, they're workhorses. You know, they, they work. They're mm-hmm. draft horses. My, um, yeah. you know, in my family, you know, my, my great grandfather had a team on our farm and that he worked on my family wow. farm. They did yeah. labor. Yeah. And by the time it got to me, my mom and I just rode, um, which is a fairly typical farm story. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I point you my, like, uh, also, I will say, um, I, I am, I'm a, I, I love the theory. I love the arguments you make here, but you also do just tell a good story. So that is true. You have great success with that. Oh, but um, this paints this real picture of kind of the normalcy of horses as well, that just they're everywhere yeah. in the pre-industrial age. That's right. They and, were everywhere. And you didn't see them much like most people don't notice cars today. They just were a part yeah. of the fabric of our lives. Um, and so, you know, that shift, them not being used less and less for industrial labor and being less and less visible everywhere, more and more for leisure and leisure for people who could afford to access them, that shift meant they became less noticeable. We didn't see them as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which takes them out of our present life and a bit more into our imagination, which I think is a nice segue into chapter three, Dreaming of Horses. That's the pony book genre and other horse stories in the mid 20th century. Yeah. that. So I was interested not only in the actual relationships between girls and horses and humans and horses and the actual mm-hmm. lives of horses. And I was interested in that. And I try to explore that. But I was also interested in ways of thinking about horses, because as a sociologist, I think the ways we think about things, 
is as important as what's actually happening, right? And often we're wrong about what's happening, mm-hmm. but it, you know, to some extent, if a lot of people believe <laughs> something to be true, it has, you know, as the Thomas theorem in sociology argues, it has some truth to it. So if people believe mm-hmm. that there's a fire in a building and they all run out and somebody gets killed on the way out in the there was, let's say we find out there was no fire, but the reality of people thinking there was a fire had a real impact. So that's the case with a lot of things like, right, we know race isn't real. There's no biology (laughs) to race, but it, it still matters because a lot of people Mm -hmm. still believe in it. And that's meant oppression, you know, these forms of oppression. Mm -hmm. So same with horses, Um, what people think matters a lot. And I argue in my book that girls thinking and imagining of horses, even that has been liberatory for girls um, in a way that, such that I think many girls never, horse crazy girls never really have access to horses. Mm -hmm. Most of the women I interviewed didn't own a horse. Some only got to see a horse once or twice a year, but they were utterly and completely horse crazy. And I found it fascinating that their experience of fantasies kind of mirrored the experiences of girls who did have access to horses, the sort of liberation and the strength and the centering themselves in the stories as the heroes of their own stories. And and what I enjoyed was finding how much much of the literature, not all, reflected that. So particularly coming from England, there was this whole wave of what, what were called pony books that um, from the 1930s on into the 70s, there still are, but that was the big period, the 30s to the 70s, when there were lots of them, where there were these stories being written that nearly always had a girl hero. If there was a boy in the story, the boy was with the girl, but there was there very few that actually had the boy be the hero, which is if you, you know, I'm sure people mm-hmm. are aware that the literature of that time period was really unusual in the Western world. So girls were heroes in these stories and they were the ones who were active. They rescued boys. They captured wild horses. The horse would only be ridden by them. It wouldn't allow anyone else nearby. Um, mm-hmm. Those were the kinds of tales. They were really strangely feminist tales. Uh, and so in the U.S., Another interesting thing was in the U.S., a lot of those stories did the exact opposite. They centered boys. There were, for example, in Walter Farley's Black Stallion series, 20-some books, there's almost no females. Not only no female humans, no female horses. One book has a a girl hero who comes and goes, um, but she's always secondary to Alec, the boy hero. And one book has a female horse who also comes and goes, but is basically, you know, the only one in all those series. So there was a a way in which boys continue to be centered in the United States horse crazy girl literature. And what I found from the girls, former horse crazy girls that I spoke with was that they just stepped in as the boy. So they didn't play the girl role, which was invisible. They became the boy and they had all the adventures themselves. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Which is a very kind of profoundly feminist move to make, you know? Wow. I went through this realization that, Alec, you're right. There's nobody in the Black Style. Like, those are all. How did I not notice that I was reading about boys and only boys? Although, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I just that was the that was life in the 80s of my teenage years sure. of my childhood. But um, 
Yeah, that's that's exactly how I interacted with those books. Isn't know? that interesting, right? That's it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, did you know did you notice? I'm not sure if you read that one, but the the one female horse that's in the book is called the Black Minx. So she's the you know, the the sort of the sexism mm. through and through it was pretty yeah. profound. Periodically <laughs> we got a tiny glimpse of Alex's mother who was in the kitchen doing the things women are supposed mm. to do. She was cooking and worrying about her son, but we almost never she never really entered into the story the way his father did or his male trainer did or mm-hmm. yeah it was pretty amazing but yeah I I mean I had any number of former horse crazy girls say oh yeah I was Alec it wasn't I had a crush on Alec it wasn't that I was watching Alec it was I became that hero heroic mm-hmm. figure yeah yeah and and that is that's a pretty feminist move right on indeed yeah okay yeah. um so chapter four is a very personal a uh, story of your personal history with horses, the past that's still present. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I tell stories about my own childhood um, and my relationship with, first I had a Shetland pony. And then later when I outgrew her, um, my father bought me a yearling quarter horse. And I had that horse. I named him Snip Away for all of his life until he died. And mm. so I you know, tell some of those stories just to give a sense of the of the fabric of that life, it, which is really different than many of the women I spoke with were in more urban areas. So my experience was very, very rural. And it was also interesting because when my mother left my father when I was six, we really dropped um, economically into, you know, into poverty. We got some government assistance. We, you know, my mother had a lot of trouble paying the rent. She really didn't have you know, a way to make a good living. She went back to school. So we struggled economically for some years. But in that time period, in the places where I was growing up, these very rural places, even a family that was relatively poor could have a horse because the land was available at that time. Now, that's not the case in the West anymore, for the most part. But at that time, um, you know, I could, I could, you could get a horse like people get a dog at the Humane Society, you could get them very cheap, and then you could put them out on the Mm -hmm. land. And they just my horses lived my horse and my pony originally lived outside. They just grazed. And the Mm -hmm. most I ever paid um, was by the time I was in college and my horse was in somebody's pasture, they charged me $15 a month for his upkeep. And that essentially meant he grazed in the summer and they threw him hay in the winter and that was it. And at the time I felt bad, like I'm not taking good care of my horse. He should be inside, but we could never afford it. So it's funny now to see the whole natural horsemanship movement arguing that the best thing for horses is to do exactly what I did, but I did it only because I didn't have... any money, you know, and my horse was always outside. He was always grazing. He was barefoot most of the time. Mm Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Very happy natural horse. That is an interesting kind of change too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, that's, it's a beautiful chapter. Um, and then we move on to uh, chapter five ways of thinking about normal in the U S horse, crazy white girls in the late 20th century. Yeah. So in chapter five, I'm interested in the kind of the two debates that I alluded to earlier in our Mm -hmm. our discussion. And that is that there have been a couple of movements um, proposing in the mainstream, proposing ways for girls to be. And and the movements have, you know, historically coded girls as always white and girls as always heterosexual. So in both of these kind of mainstream movements, that's been the case. Um, On one end, there was this idea that 
that w- women should enter into the wage workforce and leave behind the care work. And what that meant was that people who couldn't, women who couldn't afford to enter into the wage workforce ended up doing the care work for those women who were largely white who entered into the wage workforce. So that was one um, way in which it happened. But the idea behind the liberal feminist movement of that time in the 70s and 80s and even 90s, um, a lot of that is still out there, That those arguments, was that the work that really matters is the work in the public world that men have been doing. And, and that care work is sort of like, you know, deadening um, kinds mm-hmm. of work. And that's really begun to shift in the last maybe five or 10 years. There's been a growing movement of feminists who are looking back at, you know, who are concerned about the questions of care um, and how much care matters and how much we should center caregiving as one of the most important things that humans do. Um, but on the other hand, and this is still very present as well, there's been an ongoing conservative movement in the United States that believes in the, the naturalness of sex. So, you know, people born with a mm-hmm. vagina are gendered female and desire males. You know, that framework, which is a conservative sort of reifying uh, cr- traditional ideas of biology, um, th- those movements, as anybody who's following the Trump administration knows, those movements are alive and well in the U.S. The United States is a remarkably conservative country. And so girls who were mainstream had these visions to look to. Right. And if they were girls of color, they didn't see themselves in those visions. And if they were queer girls, they didn't see themselves in those visions. But. Um, nonetheless, that's what was being proposed. This idea of entering mm-hmm. the mage, wage workforce or this other idea of the right thing for girls to do when they grow up is to become mothers and homemakers. So what I argue is that horse crazy girls who are predominantly in, in my study, and I think probably from everything I've read, you know, it, 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 this is not just in my study. They've been predominantly white for a whole variety of reasons, including, you know, just basic white privilege. Um, that those girls took both of these things, both of these ideas of girlhood, and they 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 made something else. They sort of refused them both. They made caregiving mm-hmm. central. They cared for their horses. The relationship they had with horses was really important. And they also made assertiveness of being out in the world and being strong and, and being willing to risk danger. I mean, it's fascinating that horseback riding is listed as by some sports scholars as the most dangerous sport. Now, you could argue with that, right? Obviously, football, American, mm-hmm. United States football is very dangerous as well. And there are other sports that are really dangerous. But certainly one would probably, everyone would agree that horseback riding is up there as one of the you know three or four most dangerous sports. And yet it's a support, it's a sport dominated by girls and women. So, you know, what does mm-hmm. that say? That girls and women who are meant to be, you know, mm-hmm. more timid and afraid are actually and have been for some time the majority of that you know, the choosing this sport, choosing it and feeling oddly enough safer when riding than they feel in other places. So doing something very dangerous is suddenly safe. Um, and all that I think is turning mainstream ideas about gender on its head. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, you introduced this idea of vital care, which is a, a caregiving that's, that is um, active. Right? Yes. That, yeah. So you kind of this the mel- like melding of, you know, of the gender binaries that kind of fall apart here. Yes. Um, yeah. Brilliant. I gotta love this chapter. Um, so I love the book. All right, chapter six: Horsey girls, heteronormativity, and otherness. Oh. Yes. So yeah. I, I, what I what I found is whereas it seems that horse crazy girls in the U.S. to date 
that that sort of cultural phenomena has been dominated by white girls, so girls with white privilege. Um, it's also, I think, not. It also includes a nice percentage or a nice por- you know portion of mm-hmm. girls who come with other kinds of marginalization. So there's in because horseback riding does offer a kind of freedom and strength. Um, horseback riding is popular among girls who have disability, and it's even used. It, and this is really growing, uh, as I'm, I'm sure others are aware, as a type of therapy. And interestingly enough, equine therapy is a type of therapy for a whole slew of things. So usually, you know, when the medical model comes up with something to treat people, mm-hmm. it's pretty specific, right? It's for Alzheimer's or it's for a broken leg or it's for um, Parkinson's or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. But equine therapy in, in its various forms is used for all kinds of things from psychiatric disability to including a trauma history like mine mm-hmm. to, you know, Parkinson's and MS and all kinds of things. Um, and, and so there's a large portion of the, of horse crazy girls who are girls with disability and see this as a place where they can become right. And, mm-hmm. and as some of the women I spoke with talked about with horse, you know, women who had disability with horses, they were, able to do everything that everybody else was able to do. Suddenly, you know, I, I spoke with three women who were using wheelchairs and all of them said, when I'm on a horse, I'm not looking up at people anymore. I'm looking down mm-hmm. at people yeah. and I'm able to run and I'm able to be fast and free. Um, one woman I spoke with is a competitive horseback rider on an international level um, and in her area, one of the best in the world. And she has mobility issues. So it's very hard for her to walk. Um, but she can, she can ride better than almost anyone. Right. Which is kind of amazing because, you know, if you have trouble balancing when you walk, why is it that, the, that, that doesn't, tra- I mean, horseback riding is in large part about balance and yet somehow the relationship that she has with her body and the horse's body and the way they become together allows her to be not only as good as everyone else, but better, you know, than most of us. So, um, it was just kind of amazing. Yeah. That 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 area of marginalization, you know, was a place of becoming when it came to horses. And the other thing I found was I and I think and this, you know, I didn't do a random sample or anything like that. So I have to be very tentative about generalizing, of course. But my sense is that there's a, a larger population of girls and women who in today's language would identify as LGBTQ or and queer um, that are horseback riders. And and I think in some periods of time, that might have even been a bigger percentage than it is now. I'm not sure. But I know that some of the women I spoke to who who were in the time of the interviews in their 60s and 70s talked about horse, you know, knowing they were lesbian from when they were three or four years old, for example, and and yet not having a place that was that was accepting of the ways in which somehow normative gender didn't fit for them. Or mm-hmm. women who, you know, who said at the time they were considered themselves tomboys, but there were no sports available to them. You know, in, a woman in her 70s had very few options if you were athletic, sure, sure. but horses was a place they could be athletic and be out and about in the world. So the ways in which horseback riding for girls challenges, you know, ideas of normal girlness um, mm-hmm. have been liberating for girls who are LGBTQ. Well, and, you know, in questions of strength, too, you know, uh, the uh, this idea that we we design sports around male bodies to showcase ways males can excel, you know, like traditionally yeah. male bodies like in sexual dimorphism. But with horses, that's not there. I'm I am just as strong on my horse as my horse is. Um, yes. And then the when you add into that the idea that it is often a female dominated space, 
it's very liberating and you don't have to worry so much. You know, you can be dirty. You don't have to worry about the nonsense. You have to worry about in other places. Yeah. Yeah. There's a kind of freedom in terms of all those questions of appearance. So girls who are mm-hmm. horse crazy are more concerned about their skill with the horse or how their horse mm-hmm. is doing than they are about, you know, I mean, in fact, some of the normative feminine things like thinness can be a disadvantage because mm-hmm. that can come with less strength, you know, and, and you need to be able to be leaned on by your horse when you're cleaning the horse's hooves or, or, or manage when you fall off without breaking a lot of bones and so on. Yeah. So that strength yeah. is valued. Muscles are valued. Yeah. yeah, it's really it's a, it's a very different space. Great point there. All right. And then um, we have kind of a conclusion of the whole the arc of the book and the arc of the life of horses with for life, death and rescue. Yeah. So um, I'm someone who's really interested in and concerned about non-human animal lives in the world, animals mm-hmm. that aren't human. And um, I'm concerned about things like factory farming, which for those who know about it is mm-hmm. a really brutal practice when it comes to animals. It's terrible for the environment and it's really hard on human workers as well. Um, And of course, the things we produce like meat uh, are not good for humans by and large. There's much healthier ways to eat and ways we could eat that would be better for the whole planet, right? Beans and rice are a very healthy food. And if we raise that instead of cattle, we'd be able to raise a lot more food and feed more people. And we wouldn't need to cut down rainforests for space for the cattle or space for the soy, et cetera, right? So that's, those are all concerns right. of mine. And I was interested when it came to horses after having studied particularly beef cattle, which is what one side of my family was invested in when I was a child. Um, I was interested in how I mentioned earlier in our conversation, horses cross a line where for a period they're like mm-hmm. our pets and humans in the U.S. and other probably, you know, many other places, see our pets almost as family now. I mean, there's a way in which people are sort of admitting in the open, coming out of the closet about how their dog is their best friend or their closest person is their, you know, cat, person, being. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there's been shifts in really recognizing the importance of animals in our lives and how central and how family they are to us. But we still have this profound denial about the way we treat animals with equal intelligence or even more animals like pigs who are much smarter than dogs and very loyal as pets. We treat them. I mean, it's really brutal, the industry in which they're raised and killed. I mean, Mm -hmm. really brutal. And so that disconnect is is both troubling for me, but it's also interesting, right? Talk about an ideology that this animal, less intelligent, Mm. about the same size, is valued where I would go through thousands of dollars of cancer treatments to keep this animal alive. And that one, I'm willing to have it essentially tortured, you know, when it's getting killed to be eaten. So why is it that that's the case? Why do I make this disconnect? And and how is it bound up with a political economy that's very invested in producing meat and very invested in producing pet food, which is a big moneymaker, right? So horses for a time are on the pet side of that line and they're very valued, but many of them end up crossing over to the farm animal side. Mm-hmm. And they're one of few animals that does make that cross, right? That are beloved pets and family members, as well as potential source of profit from their physical bodies. Um, And, you know, obviously slaughterhouses is not the only way that that happens, but that's the one I looked at. Horses can be, um, you know, transformed into, into meat for pet food. And for some people in Western Europe, you know, there's still um, food. Some people in the U.S. too, although that's been less common in the U.S. than it has in other places, the eating of horses. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, I'm sort of interested in how they move across the line in our thinking and in their lives. 
Uh, yeah, it's, I, I can't think of anything else that works that way. I can't think of another animal that, like, you know, you hang out with, hug, and, like, is your best friend, and then you send off, to, and you kind of outsource their death. Yeah, I, that's I, right. I don't know and, of anything else. And if, you know, for people who've studied slaughterhouses, it's, you know, it sounds, I think a lot of families think, well, it's just a way to euthanize the horse. And, and then we make a little money. And in fact, we, we earn money instead of losing money, having a vet come out and put the mm-hmm. horse down. If let's say a horse, you know, is, is mm-hmm. so badly injured or whatever. But the reality of the slaughterhouse is it's not like euthanization. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's ugly. It's a, it's a yeah, very it's, it's ugly death. Yeah. And so to be able to do that with our horse when we, then, you know, most people with their, who are close to their dog would, would think of doing that for their dog as much as they think of doing that to their grandmother. I mean, that's just a horrifying mm-hmm. idea yes. to put your dog through that, but somehow the horse ends up slipping over. And I don't think it's usually the girls themselves who, you know, it's, I think it's an artifact of growing up. I think it's an artifact of the reality that horses are expensive. So let's say the girl's off to college, the family can't afford the horse anymore. Here's a quick way to take care of this issue. Um, my own childhood pony, you know, in retrospect, I, I, I my, was killed in a slaughterhouse. Um, and I, you know, I sort of believed the line that my horse was put out to pasture to live, you know, retire pony style, but that's not what happened. Um, no. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean, there also, there is just an issue of the practicality of how enormous they are. And um there's no space in a lot of backyards for them. I mean, right. so I think on some level there's this argument that becomes about like whether it's practical and that, that in itself is an interesting question because also grandma's not practical either, but right. Yeah. yeah. There are things we do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah um, I was, uh, I, I don't have, I, I've lost my guys and um, I had to, I thought quite a bit about them and their ends and how, how they, how they went um, with this chapter. And you kind of can, you conclude this arc and then your epilogue, this little coda, um, which I started to call in my head, the brony chapter, um, <laughs> the, boy, the, the boys who love ponies. Yeah. Um, and you have this, you just kind of, you shift focus here. Um, talk about boys who love ponies. Tell me about this chapter. Well, I was interested in how, I mean, here we have a, another horse crazy group in a sense, right? But right. they also are sort of tipping over culture, tipping over ideas of gender, bursting through those ideas. And so bronies are, you know, it's bro, like brother with pony and becomes brony. Um, now there are girl bronies, but for the most part, it's dominated by by men, young men, some boys, but probably more people in their late teens and early 20s. Um and it's a movement who are interested in My Little Pony. So they're not exactly, you know, I interviewed some bronies and they, you know, we're not exactly horse crazy. We're really fascinated with the My Little Pony show. But but that's kind of fascinating that one of the ways in which culture shaped ponies for girls, right? My Little Pony is quintessential normative femininity. They're pink and they're glittery and they worry about how their mane looks. But here they became something that was consumed by boys. And what was that about? And so the, the, the bronies that I spoke with told me that, um, it's because the one iteration of the, my little pony show, and it's had several, I think four in total. Um, but one of them that's probably the best known and the most popular was very centered around the idea of friendship. Friendship is magic was the theme. And it, it, 
it was a show that, yes, it did normative girlhood and sort of press that onto girls, but it also talked about the power of friendship and the ways in which friends matter and, 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 and how love and treating people well matters and things like that. And the bronies are actually into that. So one, one brony, I, I quote said, and I think it's in that little epilogue. Um, he said, our motto is we're going to, we're going to love and friendship the hell out of you. Um, so, you know, but that's what they cared about was the relationship. And so it was, again, sort of using this thing that came out of horse crazy girlness. I mean, my little pony was, you know, a brilliant move by capitalism to make a lot of money for someone and lots of money they've, they've made, but then somebody else picked up on it and started to use it for their own ends. And the use was, it was a challenge to gender because of course, Mm -hmm. boys are not meant to make their friendships, the center, right? They're meant to be tough. They're meant to be angry. They're not meant to be interested in pretty ponies. I mean, My Little Pony was actually really designed for, you know, people who are girls who are four or five, six, little, but they picked up on that and they unashamedly, you know, enjoyed it. So it's a really nice challenge. I think I, I, I love that movement. Yeah, that um, I had not thought about it all that much. And I just beyond kind of, um, people are interesting, you know, they're like, okay, there's, there's something out there. But um, I, I really had to like develop some respect for the idea of this level of gender subversion yeah. um, uh, surrounding pink, fantastical ponies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. um, yeah. So, you know, um, I've taken a lot of your time and we're, uh, we're we've reached the end here. So let's wrap up. Um, so tell me like some parting words. What are you working on now? What's the next thing we can see from you? Oh, uh, nice question. I, I, I'm actually working on a few things, but, but, um, the project that might be closest to my heart is a creative nonfiction project. So I'm working on really moving into solidly into memoir and writing about my family and the violence that happened in my family, mm-hmm. but including the racist violence. Um, some of my family members were involved with the KKK. So I'm writing about that as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in how uh, out of that, you know, nonetheless, you know, out of a lot of craziness, members of my family managed to do something different. So I'm not only interested in how the violence happened, but also how people managed to challenge it and really make other choices. So that's what this book is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what an interesting shift into creative nonfiction. How fun. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's it. That's really bold. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, there's something a little bit comforting about writing about others and things and ideas, mm. but you have a real gift as a storyteller and there's a lot of uh, memoir in here. And so I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to reading that. Thank you so much. It has been great to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you when your next project comes out. Oh, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>